0: As we're gathered together this morning, as the announcements and the other features of our time together have already taken place, we have joined together our thoughts in prayer. We have sung some beautiful songs together. And now we have an opportunity, in addition to that, to focus for a few moments on some of the aspects of the Word of God. We're continuing to be so interested and delighted in the blessing that God has allowed us to understand. And certainly, as we're thankful for our membership and our visitors who've come our way today, we hope that our study over the next few moments of this section of the book of Leviticus can certainly be uplifting, encouraging, and directive unto us in the way that's most needful. Here at the Pippin Congregation this year, we have set before ourselves the, the interesting and the lovely task of reading through the entirety of the Word of God, And that reading plan this past week used as a part of it readings from the New Testament book of Mark and from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. This morning's lesson is patterned after the 10th chapter of that book, at least the first few verses of it. Nadab and Abihu set before us from that scene of the ancient Old Testament era some lessons that are vital, lessons that are needful, Lessons that remind us about the absolute character of the God of heaven and what's involved in appropriate worship unto Him. It is with that in mind that you'll notice at the top of that slide, that Bible reading for now has brought us through 182 chapters of the the book of God. Over 15% of its totality has been read. This section in Leviticus, as we well remember, is... Basically, a set of instructions, many of which are important for the Levites in particular, but a large number of them very vital for the entirety of all of Israel. You might wonder, and sometimes folks throughout the centuries have, are these thoughts, are these words needful then for us today who live so many centuries this side of those events? And that answer continues to be a resounding yes. It's not that we serve beneath the law that dictates animal sacrifices like this any longer. But as far as a pattern, a set of principles, a set of appreciations and guidelines, these matters in the Old Testament often serve to help us understand the importance of so much of what we find in the New Testament. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the priesthood is a central figure in the book of Leviticus. This set of individuals who would be the very descendants of Levi, and particularly Aaron and his descendants, would be individuals who were especially selected and chosen by God to occupy a very important and significant position. They were the ones that offered the sacrifices. They officiated at the tabernacle. They were the ones who were given the opportunity to serve as those who would draw the people closer to God the priests were extraordinarily important. So much so that the priesthood was to be safeguarded. It was not to be looked upon with disrespect. It was not to be looked upon with a means of trivialness. You'll notice that some of the statements at the bottom of that slide, though, highlight to us that the priests themselves sometimes made dramatic errors. And they needed to learn lessons. And the people needed to appreciate those mistakes so that they could avoid them. I would invite you to revisit with me a time-tested event from the book of Leviticus. Maybe the most well-known section of the whole book of Leviticus is the one before us this morning. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, Brother Greg read for us a few moments ago, the sad and sorrowful saga of these gentlemen named Nadab and Abihu. It is with that in mind, I would encourage you to revisit that scene with me as we put those thoughts before us again. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses spake unto Aaron, This is it, that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The items found on this next slide are my attempt to rehearse the scene of that event and to appreciate in rather dramatic fashion that which the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve for us. You recall the scene as we have read it. This scene in Leviticus chapter 10 follows a number of chapters, especially chapters 8 and 9, in which we find in Leviticus that God especially selected these descendants of Aaron, and they were given special clothing to wear, they were given a special hat to wear, they were given especial matters that distinguished them from the common individuals. These were the priests. They were to be respected as individuals who loved the law of the Lord and who desired above anything else not only to maintain it themselves but to assist others in knowing the same. You notice that the priesthood, as you come near the close of chapter number nine, was especially sanctified by the God of heaven that special ceremony that God had Moses officiate over as it related to the ordination of the priests, it was an extraordinarily solemn occasion. In fact, I would invite you to notice somewhat interestingly at least a verse or two near the close of chapter 9 and notice how special the priesthood was. In verse number 23, "...and Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation." and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from the Lord, and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Those are the closing thoughts of chapter 9, and perhaps you can piece together a fair amount of what had taken place. In that ordination ceremony, there were some sacrifices that were supposed to have been made. And as the people had assembled around, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle and then exited. And when they did there, the glory of the Lord consumed these matters before them. And you notice the wording is very careful. It helps us see that all the people recognized the very presence of God. All of them understood by virtue of their shout that this was a matter to which God had given His approval. The priesthood had been ordained. They had been set apart and sanctified. In light of that, the very next verse, Leviticus 10 verse 1, now presents the very opposite of those matters. I've tried to ask you to notice some of the features on this slide. It might do us well to remember as we begin this, to give thought to Aaron had four boys. Aaron and his wife were blessed with four children, all of them sons. They were Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And surely we each can understand that those would have been in the position of knowing that the priesthood would be theirs at some time and at some location. At this point, notice in verse 1 then of chapter number 10. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense their own. These individuals, these two boys, namely Nadab and Abihu, they were at this position. You'll notice they had just witnessed the very presence of the glory of God. They had just observed the absolute nature of the grandness of what had taken place. Now, it says these two. They made preparation. They made an approach, if you please, to the very God of heaven Himself. It says they took either of them His censer. A censer was an item, an element that allowed them to hold and yet to put coals of that which could ultimately bear incense or other things unto God. It was basically something that could hold something very hot like those coals of fire It was also, of course, that which when those matters were sprinkled in it, would have a nice incense aroma emanating from it. You'll notice it goes on to say, not only did they prepare that censer, they put fire in relation to it. They were making ready, you see, to engage in an activity, and we now know what it was. The verse says, "...they offered strange fire before the Lord." in the preparation that they had made, in the particular features that they had made ready on that occasion. They offered strange fire, the text says, before the Lord. And immediately our mind would no doubt wonder what that was unless the Holy Spirit had told us. Strange fire, what kind of fire was that? As far as you and I know, fire looks like fire. It burns and it's hot. But we notice that there was something special, there was something unique, there was something regulated and demanded by the God of heaven. Strange fire, it says, was fire which He, that is God, commanded them not. Immediately we understand that these two, as they entered into this location and place, and as they engaged in these aspects of leadership and worship, They did so by offering something that God had never commanded. At this point, you and I might notice fire had its place in the ancient worship of Israel, didn't it? There was, you may remember, an altar of incense. There was, furthermore, an appreciation of a burnt altar, or I should say, an altar of burnt offering. Surely, fire was a matter to be appreciated, but not just any fire and not just any way. It was a fire that God had specified. Here, this was things He had not specified. Nadab and Abihu did it anyway. You'll notice in light of that, we come near the bottom of that slide. As they offered this strange fire unto the Lord, and they did so with the witness of Israel, we are appreciative of a very noteworthy fact. God does not lead us to wonder what happened. Verse 2 describes it. "...and there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord." Nadab and Abihu lost their lives on that occasion. Apparently just a mere little while since the very priesthood was ordained. Just a very few verses since the occasion in which Aaron and his sons had been set apart. These two did that which ought not to have been done... And in so doing, they violated the premise of the priesthood. And the text says again, fire came out from the Lord and devoured them. This fire leapt out, leapt forward upon them, and they lost their lives instantly. As you reflect upon the nature of that statement with me, doesn't it lead us also to the following comments as well? At the top of this slide, you'll notice the following with me. Namely, a characteristic that has in it some lessons for you and me to seriously consider. This scene of Nadab in Abihu, this set of ideas with respect to the nature of that event, let us reanalyze what is it that they did and what might be some very pertinent matters for you and me to realize, recognize, and implement even today. It has to begin with this subject of authority, doesn't it? The people of Israel, you see, had been in a position where on Mount Sinai, God had delivered through Moses, ultimately to the people of Israel, what constituted the worship in which they were to engage. They were not allowed. They weren't given the liberty to select that for themselves, were they? You'll notice even on that slide before us, worship to God, as you and I know, continues to be and shall forever be. Fundamentally important. Maybe those comments at the top set before us again one more time the issue, the matter, the constitution of authority. You and I live in an age and in a time when it seems that on far too many occasions, authority and religion is looked upon as unnecessary It's looked upon as a matter to relegate to the discussion point of some in in theological seminaries or such places. But for the common person, it just isn't that important. So we're told. You'll notice on this occasion, Nadab and Abihu engaged in worship. Did they not? They prepared fire. They prepared incense. They went into the place but that still was not acceptable. It still was that which did not please the God of heaven. And you'll notice his response to it was swift and immediate. Authority in religion was a vitally important matter and these two, Nadab and Abihu did not respect the authority of God with respect to the matter of worship, did they? You'll notice that that scene, that matter, that topic of authority continues to be so very important. Quite often in the sacred scriptures, do we not encounter it? In Matthew chapter, or rather Mark chapter 11, we remember here was an occasion in which the Lord Himself found Himself in a discussion with some who had something to say about authority. The scene, of course, went somewhat like this Jesus, not too many verses before that, had overturned the money changers' tables, He'd driven out the livestock and those things that were encumbering what was supposed to be worship in the temple. But in so doing, those verses following, there were some who questioned, why did He do this? And in fact, do you remember the wording that they employed? By what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you the right to enter into the temple and turn over our tables? Who gave you the right to make a cord and chase out these animals? They wanted to know where Jesus got the authority. You see, even those who were often opposed to Him at least understood there was something to be said about authority. You may remember that Jesus said, I've also got a question for you, and if you'll answer mine, I'll answer yours. And He asked them, of course, about the baptism of John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or of men? Tell me, He said, They chose not to do so because they knew he had placed them on the horns of a dilemma. He had placed them in a position to which they could not easily remove themselves. They reasoned within themselves if we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe it? If we say it was of men, the people respected John as a prophet and we'll lose reputation amongst them. And so they said, We cannot tell. Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Isn't it interesting that even they understood the feature of authority? You'll notice yet another scene and example in Acts the fourth chapter. Peter and John had just had the blessed opportunity of healing that gentleman mentioned in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. That man that was lame and laid at that beautiful gate of the temple. However, as the scene unfolded in chapter number 4, here were these two again being questioned or arraigned before some authorities. And one more time, the question of authority was raised. Where did you get this authority? Today, may we be so quick to say that this issue of authority in religion is of fundamental significance. Nadab and Abihu's their worship was not acceptable. Could it be today that worship still might be unacceptable, it might be empty or useless if it is not based upon the proper authority as vested in the Word of God? We shall see as our lesson proceeds this morning. As you arrive at the middle point of that slide, you'll notice very seriously that worship, as you and I read of it, is a very powerfully regulated matter, isn't it? Jesus, did He not say in Matthew fourteen, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Here was a scene in which it occurred in the midst of those temptations. The devil had come before Jesus and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give all of it to you. Jesus, in haste, on that occasion said, Thou shalt worship The Lord thy God and Him only shalt thou serve. The worship of the God of heaven is fundamental and that very word, the word worship, (laughs) involves the aspect of this, acts of reverence directed to God. It is not arbitrary acts that take place for some other purpose. It is a set of acts, A-C-T-S, directed to God. And you'll notice that those acts are for the reverence of, the worship of That word worship in the New Testament is from the word proskuneo, and literally it means to kiss the hand toward. It is a show of one who considers himself or herself inferior to the one who is being worshipped. God is the one we're worshipping. He is great. He is awesome. He is mighty. And you and I are the creatures who respect or should respect those set of characteristics isn't it interesting in light of those thoughts about worship? That then indicates directly that what Nadab and Abihu did was an affront to the very God of heaven. Things which He commanded them not. Consider with me for just a moment. Nadab and Abihu, as you'll notice, the closeness with which chapter 10 Follows right after those closing events of chapter 9. Maybe Nadab and Abihu were swept up in the emotion of the moment. Maybe after the glory of God appeared and they understood the great opportunity and the people shouting as they were, maybe they took upon themselves emotionally to go in and do this. We learned something immediate. That didn't make a bit of difference. Worship still must be regulated and set forth, mustn't it? by the nature of the absolute positive statements of what God has made. Their emotional response couldn't be what guided and dictated what they did. Their emotional feelings could not correctly dictate what took place. They needed a positive, thus saith the Lord, as determination for that which they did in worship, and they didn't have it. Therefore, this was what He had commanded them not And fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. We find that these two, as they engaged in this, quote, worship, unquote, did that again which was not such that it had the authority of the God of heaven. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice then that these feelings of emotion, if that's what guided it, these feelings of earnestness and sincerity, if that's what guided it, is such that the following statement must bear heavily upon your mind and mind. That premise, you see, hasn't changed any. As you and I come to the New Testament pages, and we find those laws that describe your worship and mind today, we read verses like these. Colossians 3 verse 17, "...whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him." Everything that you do in word or deed, the inspired Apostle Paul said it must be done by the authority of Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it interesting the context in which that's found? In Colossians 3.17, that verse you and I just noted, pause to consider what went just before it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. This is in the context of describing matters like singing. It must be done with a positive authority from heaven. If worship is in any way changed, augmented or modified in such a way that there's not that positive authority, then in principle... Could it not be described in a way somewhat similar to that which was the matter for Nadab and Abihu? As you come near the close of that slide, our consideration of authority leads us again to ponder how different in many ways it seems as if the thoughts of men continue to be over against this matter. Maybe you as well as I are aware of individuals who think worship Let it be guided by your heart. It's how you feel. Do you feel like you're emotionally involved? If you do, that's enough and God is pleased. That's what the world tells us. It is not so. It never has been so. Even in the Old Testament, God didn't accept just anything and call it worship. And certainly He does not today. Perhaps for those reasons, look at a few additional thoughts about that very matter on this following slide. Think with me then about the music of worship. Brother Jonathan has led us this morning in these touching and lovely hymns, hymns that have asked us, and in fact in our mind we've appreciated so many lovely biblical truths. But yet, when you and I give thought to the music of worship, God has specified, hasn't He? He has said many things about it. As you look at those seven New Testament references to music and worship, you'll find that every one of them make reference to singing. You might well select just a handful of them with me. We noted that Colossians 3 passage It has a sister passage in Ephesians 5, and that passage too reads, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There is that word singing. It specifies the utility of the human voice, the fruit of our lips, if you please, Hebrews 13, 15. And in so doing, it specifies that instrument, namely the heart, that you and I are using. You may... Interestingly, remember, that there was a series of debates. This topic has been debated many, many times over the years. Maybe the most famous was that set of debates in which Brother N.B. Hardeman defended a cappella singing and worship, and he did so over against a rather well-known Baptist preacher of the time. As that set of debates took place and unfolded, It's an interesting thing that Brother Hardiman granted the very thing that the gentleman was trying to state all along, but he had no answer for it. There is an instrument that you and I use in worship. Paul referred to it, singing and making melody. That phrase, making melody, comes from an ancient word that has behind it the thought of playing an instrument. But it always has the instrument specified with it. What's the instrument Paul said we play? Singing, making melody in your heart. The instrument we play is the heart. It's not a drum, a banjo, a xylophone, an organ or anything else. It's the human heart. And if we play any other instrument than that one, we have violated just like Nadab and Abihu did. And so when we lift our voices together in song, we are in fact playing that instrument that has generated those words. And isn't that a powerful concept? You and I would then never think to bring in a band, an orchestra or some such thing because those instruments that are described in that fashion, they are not able to teach and admonish, Colossians 3 verse 16. They are not able to fulfill the very wording that you and I have studied in light of Ephesians five 19. Isn't it interesting in light of that concept? that you'll notice there's a passage in Hebrews 2 verse 12 in which the inspired Hebrew writer quoted from the Old Testament and he said, I will sing in the midst of the congregation. You and I as a congregation of the Lord's people are assembled today and singing has taken place. As that Hebrew writer made that assertion, how sweet it is to think about then that this kind of music is pleasing unto God, he's happily willing to receive it, as long as you and I sing with the Spirit and with the understanding, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. But not only in light of that particular aspect of music, you'll notice that it might also be noted that sometimes preaching and preachers are guilty of making in parallel the same mistakes that Nadab and Abihu made. After all, preachers have the capability and they stand before an audience, and many look up to them. They are respected as individuals knowledgeable of the Word. They are respected as individuals who have the opportunity to give advice and counsel and direction to worship services. But many are the times that they, too, can choose to err, to make mistakes, to encourage things that ought not be done. I would ask you to think about just some of these matters. In Acts 20, verse 7, Paul preached until midnight. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul gave these instructions to Timothy Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away from the truth and be turned into fables. The possibility in the day of Timothy was that individuals will clamor after what's not the truth and they'll be turned to it. But Timothy, you preach the Word. You let them know about the authority of religion and you let them know about the carefulness with which worship must be offered. And you let them know about all the other details that the God of heaven has set forth. You see, you'll notice here were individuals where Nadab and Abihu were the leaders And they erred. Today, it still can be true that individuals who occupy leadership positions can err grievously. And many will follow after that lead. As you think about that aspect, notice the last one. As we look at these aspects so far in worship, we've discussed singing and preaching. Well, notice the other three also could be abused by the human family taking of the Lord's Supper. What if we change the elements? What if we tire of grape juice and unleavened bread? Are we at liberty to change them? Most people would say, surely you're not at liberty to do that. But yet they feel free to change the singing that God has commanded and they feel free to change the other things He has commanded. Why not change that one? Our God has specified these matters, and these are what He has said He will accept. These worship services, then, when you and I come together, are very special times. They're times, in fact, that lift high the banner of God's authority. We have no right to go beyond what He has said or to fall short of it. When it comes to this matter in worship, then, isn't it true that in Leviticus 10, verse number 3, two more things were said. These we can use to close our lesson this morning. First of all, you'll notice, and the wording is very, very keen, isn't it? In verse number 3, Moses said unto Aaron, "'This is it that the Lord spake.'" So note with me, God gave Moses some direct and special words to share with Aaron. "'What is it God said?' God said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. Nadab and Abihu, no matter what had motivated what they did, no matter what had been the prompting guide, they did not sanctify the God of heaven. They worshipped their way. They chose their preference. They were moved by what they thought either they or the people would prefer, apparently. But God said, Aaron... You need to know, I will be sanctified by them that come nigh me. People can't come to me frivolously, flippantly, loosely, lightly, disrespectfully and expect expect me to accept it. The God of heaven, you see, said, I will be sanctified. You'll notice He also said in that same verse, before all the people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu apparently took some of the glory to themselves, or at least it was directed to somewhere other than God. Maybe they walked in with great pomp and circumstance and said, Look at the fire we've got. Look at what we're able to accomplish. Don't you worship and love the Lord? I wonder how the people reacted when the fire came out and killed them. Do you suppose they had a renewed and heightened interest to what worship really is? Do you suppose they had a renewed appreciation for the specifics and the regulation of worship? I suspect they did. These verses that follow in Leviticus chapter 10 suggest to us that again God said, I will be glorified and I will be sanctified. Sometimes it is asked, and maybe you have faced the question many times yourselves, why don't you use mechanical instruments of music in worship? And over the centuries, many interesting kinds of answers are given. Sometimes one that I have heard is, why don't y'all prefer to have them? It is not a matter of preference. It is a matter of authority and God has never authorized them. And that settles it. There is no more discussion about the point. Every other kind of music in worship besides singing and any other changes to these matters... Have no authority. Isn't it interesting as we come near the close of our lesson then, that authority also leads us not just to worship, but of course to every other matter. The gospel plan of salvation has God's stamp of authority on it. It's not just mine. It's not just Brother Eddie's or Brother Roger's. God has said, you must believe the Son of God, Jesus, as that Son of God in order to be saved. He said, you must repent of your sins. He has said, you must confess the name of Jesus as your Savior. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you will humbly submit to them, you will be brought into fellowship with the God of heaven, added to His church, just like we had the privilege of witnessing here last Sunday evening. It might be this morning. There's one or more in the audience whose heart has been reminded about the nature of authority. If today we could help you in your public response to the gospel, we would be delighted to do it. If you strayed away from the truth, why not come back to your first love? Let us pray with you. Please just let us know that we'd be delighted again to help. Today, I hope we've each been reminded about this authority in religion. Let us use it and always rest upon a. thus saith the Lord, so that our worship will never be vain, never be useless, and never be empty. At this time, if there's one or more in need of coming forward, we would ask that you do so while together we stand and sing.